blockchain for private applications, they bring way better transparency, a better degree of decentralization, although they are more centralized than public blockchains, but they bring a better degree of decentralization and transparency, and they enhance the transaction speeds, and also they allow to synchronize the different parties in the business network. You're listening to Crypto Savvy, the show that demystifies digital assets and uncovers all things cryptocurrency. Brought to you by the Hashkey Group, a leader in financial technology and digital asset management. Crypto Savvy, the essentials. Blockchain is a fundamental technology that underwrites digital assets. It's only seven years old and came out of the protocols developed by Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous name of the creator of the Bitcoin blockchain. Since that publication of that paper, blockchain has grown exponentially and is now used in use cases around the world. Today on Crypto Savvy, we're going to unpick blockchain and dive behind to understand it a bit better. We'll be speaking with Henry Sentiero, research analyst at Capital to help us all understand in more detail how blockchain operates and use cases today. On Crypto Savvy Today, I'm joined by a new colleague, Henry Santiero, who has recently joined Hashkey Capital, uh, responsible for blockchain research. Henry, uh, welcome aboard. Can you introduce yourself and perhaps uh, explain a little bit about your role at Hashkey? Yeah, sure. Uh, Walter, first, uh... Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I've joined Hashkey as part of the research team for Hashkey Capital. My role is mainly to do uh, research around blockchain technologies and the new blockchain trends, including things like DeFi. So I'll be focusing more on the DeFi side and basically support the Hashkey Capital team in order to better understand what are the trends in the market, and also to understand what uh, are new projects doing in the DeFi space. So this is a very, very fast-moving space. One week in the uh, crypto and DeFi space is like one year in a normal world. So basically, that's trying to keep up with all the new technologies. Fantastic. Well, what we want to do is we want to peel back some of the mystery behind blockchain. Um, And can you just begin by giving us a briefer of how blockchains work in general and what makes them unique. So I like to see these uh, with the example of the accounting system. So blockchains are an accounting system and traditionally we need to send to, to trust centralized parties. So imagine in the traditional worlds, you need to trust your accountants. You have one single accountant but you have also a single point of failure. These accountants may eventually commit some kind of fraud or, or, or cook the books or do something for his own benefit. Now, imagine a world where instead of one accountant keeping uh, the records of your transactions and uh, your assets and everything, you have a way bigger amount of accountants. You have 1,000 accountants or 10,000 accountants. Like the Ethereum blockchain you have nowadays 10,000, approximately 10,000 nodes, meaning that you have like 10,000 accountants keeping the records and verifying the transactions, auditing everything. And this decentralization through like thousands of accountants will 
make it very, very hard to fake any data, to change data. That's why blockchains are immutable. You cannot go back and change data because you will have to change data across thousands of nodes. I like your analogy, Henry, because you say that in centralized finance is a single point of authority. That might be your bank or your uh, central bank. But when you're talking about blockchain, uh, the, the, the way they've overcome that single point is by taking a single uh, transaction and having it replicated in dozens of different locations and cross-checked. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the way blockchain has overcome the, the trust issue by creating a dozen, uh, as you say, accountants. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And all these accountants, all these nodes that are part of most blockchain networks, they are verifying all the transactions, they are keeping all the data. And in this way, for the first time in human history, instead of having to trust in a middleman or a centralized party, we can just, let's say, trust the system. We don't need to trust a single party. We are just trusting a network, a huge decentralized network of nodes. Right. And many of the cryptocurrencies that we uh, that are quite renowned, whether that's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Polkadot, those are all... Uh, utility coins that allow you to make transactions on that blockchain. So Bitcoin has a Bitcoin blockchain. Ethereum has the Ether blockchain, etc. Am I correct in that? Yeah, right. So public blockchains, they need to have a cryptocurrency to be uh, the incentive mechanism for uh, all the parties to keep the network alive, right? So for example, Bitcoin in in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency in the Bitcoin network or Ether in the Ethereum network is not only a cryptocurrency for people to transact, uh, for me to send you a payment, for example, is also uh, the incentive mechanism for all these accountants, all these nodes and the miners to keep the network alive, right? Because if there was no underlying cryptocurrency, then it will be uh, very hard or almost impossible to keep uh thousands of nodes and miners uh, contributing to keeping a network alive in a decentralized manner. So if I'm on OpenSea and I'm selling an NFT or buying an NFT, um, then I am paying a gas fee uh, to copy that transaction on a number of different nodes on the Ethereum blockchain to um, make sure that people, there is a valid public record of that transaction. Exactly. And by the way, these transaction fees sometimes are very annoying, right? But uh, the, the transaction fee that you pay uh, when you do uh, any uh, transaction on the Ethereum blockchain, for example, like the example that you are saying, selling or buying an NFT, these transaction fees go to the miners that are basically keeping the network alive and uh, validating the transactions. Right. So that's my uh, proof that my NFT has uh, been successfully concluded. All of these transactions occurring the, in the blockchain uh, so that we've got vol a validation of that transaction. Exactly. So uh, in blockchains like the Ethereum blockchain, you have blocks of data and the miners are grouping all the transaction in these blocks of data. And uh, once they 
validate all the transactions in that block of data. They broadcast that block to all the other nodes so that the other nodes validate that the work was done correctly. And they receive in a reward, they receive a block reward plus the transaction fees that you have paid. And Henry, why are there so many different blockchains? Do each have different benefits that make them worthwhile considering for different types of transactions? Yeah. Well, we could talk for hours about the different kinds of blockchains, but uh, just very high level. So we have, let's say, first generation blockchains like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin. And these first generation blockchains uh, only allow to send value back and forth, right? They don't have any additional functionalities. Then we have like second generation blockchains like Ethereum, Cardano, and, and so on that allow scripting functionality. So they allow the creation of smart contracts and they allow to automate things on the blockchain. So you can, these these blockchains are Turing complete usually. Turing complete meaning that you can program anything and they these smart contracts that we program can self-execute anything. We could have, we, we have smart contracts that allow uh, the payment automation in certain conditions. We, uh, they allow DeFi, they allow decentralized autonomous organizations, they allow trade finance, they allow escrow contracts and so many other things. And then uh, we, we have now uh, other blockchain solutions that uh, allow higher scalability, uh, blockchains that allow uh, enhanced privacy and private smart contracts. And then we have a, a different side of the industry, which is a, the side of the private permissioned blockchains that are more for uh, enterprise use, financial industry, traditional financial industry. Right. So Earlier, you mentioned public blockchains such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then you also mentioned private blockchains. So uh, tell us more about the private chains and how they're being used today. Yeah, so there are private blockchain technologies that are, for example, Hyperledger, the, the blockchains under the Hyperledger uh, umbrella, which are Hyperledger Fabric, Hyperledger Sotus, Hyperledger Indy. They have different use cases. Then we have Corda, Quorum, the JP Morgan uh, blockchain, Enterprise Ethereum. And basically, these technologies allow enterprises or financial institutions, traditional financial institutions, to build from scratch their own networks. And these are uh, permissioned networks, so they will say, okay, we are building this trade finance um, blockchain network that is only for uh, tier one financial institutions and also for trading companies that need to deal and have some kind of products like, for example, letters of credit. And they build these blockchains with a specific goal of uh, bringing together the parties in a, in a specific business case, like uh, trade finance, for example. And these usually are built by consortium of banks. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is, this is basically how they start uh, building these kind of um, technology. Private chains. So we yep. mentioned public blockchains, we mentioned private blockchains. You've just introduced the concept of permission, and I understand blockchains are either permissioned or permissionless. Uh, can you uh, explain that different? Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So starting with permissionless, so all the uh, public 
blockchains that most of people know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, Polygon, uh, and so on, they are permissionless blockchains, meaning that anyone can participate, anyone can transact, anyone can be a miner or a validator or nodes, and anyone can have full access to all the information. Now, permissionless blockchains, uh, the enterprise side of blockchain, um, the only participants that are uh, that go through the doorman are able to participate. So let's say in the trade finance example, I would have to go through an onboarding process and prove that I'm a legit company or that I'm a financial institution and uh, there is a KYC process. A KYC, know your customer. Exactly, <laughs> the know your customer process and then I will get an identity certificate that will allow me to participate in this uh, blockchain. And this is important, especially for uh, regulators, industries like the financial industry, right? Uh, most banks don't want to deal with public permissionless blockchains because you have thousands or millions of actors that they, they don't know. And in, in heavily, heavily regulated industries like the traditional financial industry, they need to know very well their customers. So it, it, it fits very well, this kind of industry. Uh, Henry, um, and apologies if this is too simple a question, but how is blockchain different than software? Uh, uh, and what's the unique characteristics that, uh, say, in a private permissioned blockchain environment, why is that something that software can't do? Yeah, so the, the, the thing is that blockchains in, in, for private applications, they bring a way better transparency and a, a better degree of decentralization, although they are more centralized than uh, public blockchains, but they bring a better degree of decentralization and transparency and, and they enhance the uh, transaction speeds and also they allow to synchronize the different parties in the business network. Because imagine um, in an um, enterprise situation, let's say you have different parties, you have uh, the trade finance, let's go back to the trade finance example, uh, but imagine you have a buyer, a seller, the bank of the buyer and the bank of the seller. And traditionally, if these parties want to do, for example, a letter of credit, this is a very asynchronous process. Everyone is talking about the same data, but everyone is out of sync. And like, different parties use different systems, different softwares, different ERP systems. Some of them are using an Excel spreadsheet. The others are using email. The others are using some kind of software. They need to send emails back and forth. They need to send paperwork. They need to do phone calls. What if we have a better way to do this? And the better way to do this is to have a blockchain solution where everyone is basically synchronized. Everyone has a node in this blockchain, in this permissioned blockchain, and everyone has access at the same time synchronized to the data. It's much more transparent. It's faster dealing. And very important to save trees because you save a lot of paper back and forth and everything is digitized. You're also dealing with speed issues. Uh, we spoke the other day and you mentioned a recent money transfer, going sending money back to mom and uh, not having it arrive. So, you know, uh, does blockchain have some speed advantages? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people criticize uh, that blockchains are somehow slow and they have scalability issues, but it kind of depends on the perspective, right? 
the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, can only handle uh, on every seven transactions per second, but it's still way faster than uh, sending a normal bank transfer from one country to the other. Uh, probably the Visa network is faster for small payments, but for uh, more meaningful bigger payments, uh, the uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is it's wonderful. For example, uh, a few months ago, there was someone that sent around $2 billion through the uh, Bitcoin blockchain, and the transaction took 20 minutes to be settled on the blockchain. And whoever sent this $2 billion paid $1 something worth of transaction fee. How much will your bank charge to uh, send $2 billion, right? You know, I've never asked them. I've not been in that situation, but I will inquire. Now, Henry, it seems to me that you've mentioned a few times the smart contract. Um, can you unpack that and explain why it's so important for blockchain? Yeah. So uh, smart contracts are basically a piece of computer code that we can uh or anyone can write on a blockchain. If you are talking about uh, public blockchains like uh, uh, the Ethereum blockchain, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, uh, the Secret Network, and so many others, a smart contract is a piece of computer code that we can program to do basically pretty much whatever we want. And this allows to uh, automate things. So. Probably the first example that we can see as a smart contract is like a, a vending machine. A vending machine, you have a Coca-Cola vending machine and you put $1 and you get one Coke. This is basically a smart contract. If you do this, then you get the Coke. And smart contracts basically replicate this. If this, then you get that, else you get this. And it's written in perpetuity. So as an example with my NFT uh, that on OpenSea, they can write into the contract that future sales, 5% goes to the artist or 10% goes to the charity that is uh, linked to that. And it can only be sold in certain countries, um, etc. So there are, you can put into that contract limitations and, and rights that follow that article for the rest of its life. Yes, that's a great, great, great example because, you know, Walter, artists have been struggling with royalties for many years. And in Europe and in the US, there are laws that say that for secondary sales, artists should receive in, in, in many cases royalties, but they very rarely receive those royalties because it's very hard to enforce. How do we enforce like in the in traditional uh, art space if I sell a painting and if 10 years after, uh, 10, 10 years later, the, the owner of that painting resells it for $10 million, how do I enforce that I will receive the royalties? It's very hard. But with smart contracts and the example, the NFT example that you are saying, so NFTs are basically built out of smart contracts. They are minted from smart contracts and you can program in this smart contract that the artist is going to receive five, seven, 10% of royalties for any secondary market sale. And this is automatically enforced by the smart contracts. And basically there is no way to go around and it's much more fair for the artists in this case. And this is a great example of how smart contracts can automate things. And you could have smart contracts automating many other things. I'm super excited to see uh, the uh, growing space of DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which is like 
basically uh, a limited liability company, an NLC that runs on smart contracts and everything is automated with the smart contracts. Yeah, no, we have um, uh, we had a guest earlier, John Patrick Mullen of Mantra Dow, and he walked us through managing a DAO, and uh, you can certainly see how that would be easier on blockchain. Uh, we also spoke with um, the Bank of International Settlements about using smart contracts for green finance so that they can monitor the carbon emissions or the um, electricity savings. Uh, uh, so it allows green finance to occur automatically. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Henry, um, uh, I've been told that blockchain is a little bit like sedimentary rock. There are layers that create blockchain. And on the base, you've got kind of the uh, the, the enterprise level blockchain or the, the, the kind of the foundation, the infrastructure level, then there's middleware and apps. So talk to me for a minute about that infrastructure level. That's the Bitcoin, the, the, the other chains. Is that it, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So not everything um, runs on the blockchain itself, right? We have many dApps, decentralized applications. We usually call dApp to the applications that run on the blockchain. But these applications are not fully decentralized. So the business logic uh, runs on the blockchain, but all the rest runs in more like traditional IT infrastructure. Let's take a look at the uh, OpenSea NFT example that you were just talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the smart contracts and uh, everything, the, the ownership of those NFTs, who owns what, that part is recorded on the blockchain. Now the rest is everything in more, uh, let's say traditional IT infrastructure. So for example, the image of those NFTs, usually it's associated with a picture or a short video or something. Uh, the, the artwork is like usually in this kind of format. That's stored usually either in a traditional server or in a cloud server. Uh, or what the best practices in the NFT world tell us is to start in IPFS, Interplanetary File System, which is a bit more decentralized uh, file storage. But then you have other layers, right? You have uh, a middleware and a front end, which in this case would be, for example, OpenSea. And OpenSea is like tr super traditional IT structure. They probably have a super normal cloud provider like AWS or Microsoft Azure or IBM. And so not everything is on the blockchain, right? Uh, only like the essential, the uh, the records of who owns what uh, is on, on the, uh, the blockchain layer. Henry, we've mentioned a few times NFTs, and of course, they're hugely popular. But let's talk about other use cases of blockchain. Um, you mentioned earlier trade finance. Uh, talk to us about other industries and ways that blockchain is being used today? Other industries where blockchain has been having uh, a lot of traction, uh, also in the enterprise spaces, for example, for supply chain and food safety. And uh, this is a, an example that I really like to give. It's the, the Walmart and IBM uh, product. It's the, called the IBM Food Trust. And it really solves... Uh, huge problems related to food safety, right? So in the US a few years ago, there was 
nationwide withdrawals of lettuce and spinach because of E. coli uh, salmonella outbreaks. And these bacteria, the, the salmonella bacteria, may actually kill people. And uh, actually, in these two outbreaks, uh, the, the lettuce and spinach, uh, actually, a few people died because of contaminated lettuce and contaminated uh, uh, spinach. And and back then, supermarkets, including Walmart, will take days to trace back uh, the, the the contaminated batch of lettuce and trace it back to the farmer and withdraw only that batch. So basically, they had to withdraw all the salmon, all the uh, the lettuce and spinach nationwide, and it's a huge impact for the the the, the consumer trust and really impacted the market. So a couple of years ago, uh, Walmart, in partnership with IBM, they developed the IBM Food Trust that basically allows to track and trace any leafy green products. And it, instead of taking a week to trace one batch back to the farmer, it takes like one or two seconds. And at the moment, they, they basically have enforced the, uh, the use of this blockchain solution for all their leafy green uh, suppliers. And basically, you scan a QR code and you know the entire history of that lettuce or peanuts or apples. And if there is any issue with, with related to food safety, safety or a contamination, they can automatically trace it back to the farmer, withdraw that batch that was contaminated. So there is much more transparency in the entire supply chain uh, from, from the farmer to, to the consumer. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way because with a say the NFT, you know that that artist created it, but now you're able to track lettuce back to a specific farm or field um, and then understand its provenance. Now, what are some of the barriers that are holding back greater adoption of blockchain? Let's start with the with the private blockchains. Uh, I think the biggest barrier probably is uh, at least what I see in the. Uh, traditional uh, in the industries where I came from, the biggest barrier is the chicken and egg problem. So you have this new solution. Um, so there are a few trade finance supply chain solutions, uh, like we have E-Trade Connect, which is an HKMA initiative, Contour, uh, Marco Polo, uh, Congo, these are all trade finance uh, solutions. And what, what I see, the, the, the biggest struggle for these applications is they go to corporate clients, right, to sell the solution, and the corporate client is going to ask, okay, so how many other counterparties, other corporates do I have in the platform? And how many banks are there in the platform? Uh, and it's like, mm, not many, right? So come back once you have the banks in the platform. And they go to the banks and try to sell the product, and, and the banks are going to ask, okay, how many corporate customers do you have on borders? Not that many. So, okay, come back once you have the corporate customer on borders. So they really suffer this problem, um, and it takes time. Uh, blockchains and business networks only make sense if you have many other parties to transact, if you have network effects. Now, we see network effects happening very fast in public permissionless blockchains because uh, you have at the moment basically like millions and millions of, of active users on the Ethereum blockchain, for example. Uh, so for for private 
permission of blockchains that's the, the I would say the, the biggest entry uh, barrier for uh, existing applications that are already trying to develop. Uh, maybe the second uh, entry barrier is the cost to uh, the cost related to adopt uh, these technologies, because um, although nowadays it's kind of uh, easy to deploy a node on the cloud. If you are like a bank or a traditional financial institution, you can deploy a node on the cloud. And in terms of infrastructure, it's not that uh, hard. But traditional financial institutions need to always to set up a team and all the process to implement these technologies, all the cybersecurity assessments, they have the compliance, uh, regulatory uh, compliance, and my experience is that in a traditional financial institution to implement a blockchain solution, it takes two years, basically, uh, while in, in a startup, the same solution will take like two months, but a traditional financial institution needs to follow a series of steps related to compliance, regulations, uh, IT security, and so on, which is understandable. So we're currently in the in the scale-up period of adoption of blockchain. Um, and then, as you say, once you get to a certain network effect, it becomes a lot easier for more people to join. Yeah, exactly. And we see these network effects happening very fast in, in public blockchains, right? Nowadays, uh, with DeFi, this is... Uh, it, it's very easy to see the network effects happening. And... DeFi networks are totally uh, open and transparent and they have this huge composability uh, characteristic, right? This is super important. In DeFi, you can see DeFi as a, a, a Lego money. It's like a, you build Lego bricks on the top of each other and developers can develop their DeFi applications on the top of other DeFi applications on top of other protocols. So it's very fast to improve and scale the technology um, and, uh, and and in terms of users users can also benefit from this interoperability and composability so for uh, for the open market for the DeFi space, for example, we see a very fast adoption and very good network effects. Well, uh, we've had a real deep dive into blockchain. Henry, we appreciate your expertise and wish you all the best at your career at Hashkey Capital. And um, no doubt when we have future uh, episodes on blockchain, we'll get you back in the podcast studio uh, to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us on Crypto Savvy today. Thanks, Walter. My pleasure. Thank you for joining Crypto Savvy and this deep dive into blockchain. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure you give us a five-star rating. And wherever you hear Crypto Savvy, hit like and subscribe, and we'll see you on future episodes. Thank you so much for listening to Crypto Savvy. I'm Walter Jennings, and this is Hashkey Group. Thank you for listening to Crypto Savvy, the podcast that delivers the essentials brought to you by Hashkey Group.